Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of welcoming uh, Mr. Dynamic John Azar with the Mac Venture Partners. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much, Scar. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. on. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for taking time. Uh, John is with Mac Venture Partners. Uh, today, uh, you know, with his brother, uh, Tony, they manage well over uh, just about 6,500 units uh, spanning North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia. Uh, they also own some assets in Florida and Texas uh, uh, here. And uh, to, uh, John has a great story where uh, he immigrated uh, in 1989 from Syria. And today, with such a large portfolio, it really is an incredible success story. Uh, so welcome to the show. Uh, uh, I love that story, John. Uh, Thank you. Please, so much. Uh, I appreciate it. Right, right. I mean, I'm, I'm super pumped to hear your story. And I've been wanting and waiting to uh, kind of connect with you. So I appreciate you taking time. Uh, just give us a brief background, uh, uh, John, as to how things started, how it came about, and things like that. Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, brief background on, on me or uh, on, on the company? Or, uh, sure, everything. I think how you got started. Uh, uh, you know, I know you have your own uh, property management company, Capstone. Yeah, well. yeah. So yeah, how we, things came about? Sure, sure, yeah. We, uh, my, my background, I mean, professionally, my background is, is, is have been, very heavy in investments and finance. I, I got sort of, I came through the industry on um, the equity side of the house with, uh, with Morgan Stanley and, and Royal Bank of Canada Capital Markets Group, um, and then kind of moved through to, to more institutional roles, uh, getting involved in more institutional products. Uh, and I also had my own consulting company to, to do structured finance for um, commercial real estate, large scale commercial real estate, mixed develop, mixed use development. Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2004, 2005, I opened the company with two other partners and uh, we were doing mixed use development, structured finance uh, consulting. Uh, so we consulted on uh, mostly hospitality conversion projects and mm -hmm. uh, condo conversion projects. And these were in major metro gateway cities like uh, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Miami, London. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we, we had you know, a, f a few successful projects that spanning between 2005 and 2008. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine in 2008, um, oh boy. <laughs> things changed slightly. There was quite a bit. <laughs> there was this cool thing in 2008 that happened to the economy. And, uh, Absolutely. It, it, it caused us all to switch gears and, and uh, yeah, do something different. So uh, it, around the same time, my, my brother and the CEO of the of Mac Venture Partners, Tony Azar, was just starting uh, Mac Venture Partners in, in, well, the previous iteration of Mac Venture Partners. At that point, it was called Mac Properties and Capstone Multifamily Group. And uh, um, in 2007, that was launched in multifamily and um, in 2013, 14, I joined the, I joined him in, 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 in the ranks and trying to sort of take the company to the, to the next level and, and uh, become more private equity institutional in nature by funding, uh, change our platform, um, sort of add on to our investors, investor base, you know, uh, again, change our investor and investment criteria from a, from a sort of an op operator, owner operator platform to a more of an asset manager platform. Uh, and we've done we've done pretty well. Thank you. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and we will dig into that story as to how you scaled up, uh, John, and how you know sort of uh, things and the mindset shifts. And one of the things uh, I interview a lot of guests on a podcast, right from beginning investors to advanced experience, um, uh, you know, seasoned investors like you, John. And 
one of the things that I observe all the time is that uh, people who have a professional background, whether they are coming from a, let's say, a, a brokerage like a Marcus Millichap or, uh, you know, CBRE and things of that nature, or sure. having a finance background, like somebody like you who came through like a, a equity finance uh, a, a shop and, you know, brokering various deals, understanding the numbers and things like that. Sure. There is a different mindset and how you go about analyzing it. And more importantly, it's that professional background that kind of scales you up saying that this is how the big boys play. This is how you scale up. This is how your infrastructure tends to look like. And that's, that's some of, I mean, that's, uh, sort of theme is so evident all the way across than someone like me, for example, coming through a single family world uh, and, you know, figuring their way out into multifamily and scaling up. So I just want to like, you know, congratulate you and admire uh, the fact that uh, uh, how that background shapes up. And for any listeners, uh, I want to, uh, you know, highlight that fact that pay attention to the numbers and how professional operators like as big as you guys are, that they operate, what their mindset looks like, how they look at the big picture of things, and they adapt themselves. So I, I, I absolutely love that story. Thank uh, you. Thank you. So, uh, uh, John, today, you know, my uh, sort of effort today is to kind of get behind the uh, your operations as to how your deals are structured, how you manage them. Uh, of course, you know, you do the value add and things like that. So we'll get into some of that. But uh, more importantly, uh, I want to like get behind into uh, understand that, uh, okay, you grown now at such a large scale that I want to, uh, you know, understand that what it took, uh, what were the sort of the changes uh, around you, whether it's office staff, property management, things of that nature, or different relationships that you may have established. Uh, give us an overview that how a beginning investor can evolve from going from, let's say, uh, whatever, 10, 15 deals to 100 deals to 500, 1,000, 2,000, what it takes uh, to get to that level. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 Look, the evolution of, of, of any investor or any entrepreneur in the, in the multifamily and commercial real estate in general is going to be different. The, sure. Their evolution and their journey may not be the same as our journey and my right. journey and, and evolution into the business. But, right. but every journey does have its, its own set of inflection points. And I always talk about different inflection point in the business right. and different, different set, set of points where you get to that you, you have to shift and reshift your business and look right. at it a different, different way. Uh, because when you get to start, and those inflection points specifically have to do with size and the size of assets that you're managing and what you're managing. Um, so when you get to 500 units, you're not going to be conducting yourself the same way as you used to be conducting yourself when you used to only have 50 units or 100 units. When you get to 1,000 or 1,500 units, you're not going to be conducting yourself the same way as you used to be when you used to have 500 units, you know, and so on and so forth. So. You know, each growth cycle or growth stage demands its own different set of expectations, both internally and externally. You start to conduct yourself internally differently, and, and, and you start to, to, to externally deal with your external partners also differently. And those set of external partners start to also change and shift and, and, and maybe either, you know, uh, get more sophisticated in nature, depends on your business, or, or, or not, but, or maybe just in size. Correct. Right, right. So let me maybe paraphrase also, John, uh, what specifically changed around you in the last, let's say, 10, 12 years? Uh, so let's say, you know, you were at, uh, uh, you know, whatever deal size, like, you know, what was uh, your size during the first deal? Then, you know, as you grew, you probably added more staff, you established more relations. Could you maybe give us some more insights yeah. into, uh, you know, how, uh, like, in tangible ways that how you grew and what it took to, uh, you know, get to that size. Walk us through that progression, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yes. Staff is, staff is certainly one thing. Um, I mean, the, the, the more that you grow in deal size and the more deals that you acquire under your belt, mm -hmm. uh, obviously your, a, your relationships with your, with your financial partners are going to change. Um, right. You're going to have more financial partners. Hopefully, more more lenders are going to be able to, or, or be willing and excited to do business with you because you're obviously the more deals you do with them, the more uh, your reputation with them and your track record is going to improve. 
Um, so going from you know a thousand units to two thousand units or three thousand units or four thousand units, you're gonna you're gonna have to you know you're you're adding on to your to your set to your team because that's that's what they are. They are part of your team. So your team Absolutely. involves your team involves lenders, your team equity partners, your team involves lawyers, accountants. Uh, sure. Your team involves auditors at some point. You're going to mm -hmm. involve, you know, you're going to you're going to have to at some point when you get to a certain inflection point, get mm -hmm. a get an audit auditor and auditing staff also on board. Um, so so that team dynamic is changing inter internally as well as just as externally. Those those partners I just mentioned, they mm -hmm. could be all external partners, not internal. Uh, right. Then your internal staff also change. Um, you know, when you are managing one thousand, two thousand, three thousand units, maybe maybe even four thousand units. Um, you, you might be still in the mindset and mentality of an owner operator or just an operator of real estate. Then at some point, you know, you, your, your assets under management and, and your, the size of portfolio is going to dictate that you have to become a more of an asset manager. And that mainly has to do with a lot of your internal factors and internal processes and how you handle yourself internally and structure your company internally as well. So, you know, you know things, simple things like, you know, maybe changing your controller to a CFO. Or um, you know, or, or get, getting more sophisticated accounting staff internally, uh, yeah. hiring an external auditor, so you can, so you, so you're not only you know controlling yourself internally, but you're also having an outside auditor and making sure that you're doing things right. Uh, and these are all good fiduciary things to do for your investors, uh, not just right. you know, not just for yourself, also. Right. Um, right. Your your investors, the more sophisticated they get, especially if you start to deal with more institutional level investors. They are going to expect those things. I mean, they're, that, that's going to be that's going to be part of part of what their set of expectations are going to be in order for them to deal with you. I mean, they you know. You, that's awesome. That, that's exactly what uh, the answer I was looking for, John. I, I appreciate you sharing that. That uh, you, you know, whether you go from that Excel spreadsheet showing the returns to you know having those audited results that are audited by your external uh, uh, you know CPA and things of that nature. And you rightfully mentioned the fiduciary responsibility and what the deadlines and all the other stuff that comes with it. That you have to have all those different uh, systems in place to be accountable to your investors. Uh, so another question uh, related there, uh, John, is that uh, at your size, uh, do you tend to have more institutional capital involved in your deals or do you uh, still have a lot of uh, predominance of individual investors? Could you maybe give us insight into that? We have, we have all, I mean, we, yeah, it's, it's really, it's deal size driven. Uh, we sure. still have a, we're still blessed to have a, a, a good stable of investors, individual investors, accredited investors, and we are still welcoming accredited and, sure. and individual sure. investors. We deal with them on a regular basis uh, because it really depends on the size. If, if the size of a deal is less than, uh, for us, it's, if, it's, if it's up to $5 million in equity stack and equity size, mm -hmm. we tend to we tend to try to keep it in house. Uh, it's it's a lot easier for us to just source that, that equity in house from our stable of investors that we've grown for the past you know twelve years um, than it is for us to involve anybody at, from it from an institutional nature. Uh, between four five million and about eight or nine million, really nine million is 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 probably going to be a private smaller to medium sized private equity investor, a private equity company um, mm -hmm. that would be involved in our deal. Uh, and, and maybe a combination of both. Maybe a maybe a private equity company would come in, and and we would still be able to participate with some of our own investors as well as part of mm -hmm. the carve out. Mm -hmm. um, then once you get to ten million plus in equity stack, then then all of that then it's it becomes purely institutional at that point. So anything beyond right. ten million, nine or ten million, it it, it, it switches to a an institutional investor. It's right. just a lot easier for us to deal with at that point with an institutional investor that would. That would come in and participate with one one slug, one equity slug, sure, sure. Um, as opposed to trying to go out and source you know a hundred different investors. Sure, sure. And and just a tip for our listeners that what John is talking about here is that the equity stack is your sort of your twenty to thirty thirty five percent depending on the deal. Uh, and the capex and things like that. So if you're talking, let's say, a five million dollar equity stack, generally that deal size would be in that twenty to twenty-five uh, million range. Uh, that would be the deal size. Uh, and perhaps when you hit that nine, ten million of equity stack, you're talking deals that are generally, you know, I, I I'd like to say maybe like forty, fifty million dollar deal size spanning maybe like 
500 uh, some units generally would that would that be a correct characterization yeah like yeah it's, it, yeah up to about family and equity stack you're talking about a deal that's that's probably going to be closer to the 20 million dollar range um right. the 10 million dollars is probably going to be closer to the 35 40 million dollar range got yeah. it got it yeah. got it awesome. the size parameter because you've got to always average in you calculate in a simple calculations calculate about between 70 and 72, 73% uh, debt that you're going to get that you leverage that you're going to get on, on, on those assets. Right, right, right. So uh, speaking of deals, John, uh, could you maybe give us an overview of generally how you like the framework of your deals, like uh, GPLP, uh, preferred returns, things like that. How do you go about structuring your deals? Uh, we, we structure our deal both as, I mean, obviously we are the GP in the deal and all our deals, mm-hmm. uh, but we are also participating on the investor side as well on the LP side. We put in our own money, our own cash in every single one of our deals. So we always sure. participate. We always have skin in the game in, in, in all our deals. Even if it's an institutional size deal, we're still going to have our own skin in the game sure. um, because that's just fair. It makes us, it makes us, you know, on the same size side of our investors. We are making money to the same as our investors are making money, and we're incentivized by the same set of incentives that are that's going to take to make our investors money. Uh, so, uh, so, so we generally have a yeah an LP structure and a GP structure. Most of our investors, uh, if they are passive investors, are going to come in on the LP side or or, or what's known as limited partner sides for those who don't know what the acronyms are. Um, the GP side or GP stands for general partners. General partners are are, are usually the the the, the controlling entity or the managing entity of the deal. Um, so we are we are we are the GP on all our deals, but we also put in money. And our money spills over into the LP side as well. So awesome, we are, awesome. We are on both sides of the equation. Right, right. And uh, what about preferred returns and uh, splits and things like that? How how you generally go about that? I know, I mean, a lot of this is deal specific, but uh, just a general framework. Uh, yeah, I mean, our, our returns uh, are. Uh, we, we have a pref return uh, or, or a pref rate, cash on cash rate. You know, and there's different, again, variants of how, you, how investors you know, know that, that, uh, that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, if investors are coming in from the, they're, they're used to the, the wording of the, the, the bond and, and equity markets, <laughs> you know, right. stock markets, it's, it's known as a dividend or uh, you know, a dividend distribution. Uh, or a coupon rate, uh, that's that's all the same thing. It's all cash on cash. That's what sure. what I mean. uh, so the cash on cash or the pref rate usually is, is we have a, a starting minimum point on, mm-hmm. on every deal. And that's usually average about 8% starting point. So we start out at 8% cash on cash. And uh, we try to keep all our deals at around 8%. Some of them may, you know, it's in a tough market environment. Some of them may come in a little bit lower for, for, for guaranteed pref. And then obviously we scale up from there. A lot of you know, if we're if we're lucky, we're able to find deals that are cash flowing, you know, double digits within hopefully after a year, uh, and maybe by year three they're 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 cash flowing in the you know eleven twelve percent range. Uh, so that's the cash on cash component of the deal. Then obviously they're making money um, the IRR of the deal. They're making money on the on the, on the sell of the liquidation event, um, which is the upside of the uh, uh, portion of the of the deal. Uh, and that's that. That usually happens four years, five years down the line when we actually liquidate or refinance, mm-hmm. or there's some kind of a liquidity event that happens um, sure. five years down the road. Which which brings you to the point of how long we hold our assets. Right. Most of our assets, our average hold time used to be three to five years. Um, it, up until about a year ago, we we kind of extended it to between. Now it's the sweet spot is between four and six years, just because of the market environment. It's become uh, a lot more difficult to have deals. Um, with good cap rates, exit cap rates uh, mm-hmm. that are going to satisfy that those cap rates within three to five years. So we have to extend it by about a year or two to be able to, to capture better cap rates at exit. Um, so, so which means longer hold time for the for the assets. But again, not too much longer hold time. I mean, we're we're still talking about within four or five years is what our expectations are. That's awesome. That's awesome. And thank you for that detailed answer, uh, John, because uh, you answered some of my follow-up questions as well as to, you know, like how long, how long would you like to hold the deals and things like that. Uh, so on that related topic, uh, John, uh, what is your investment philosophy? Are you more into buy and hold of these deals uh, long-term or are you 
try to improve your batting averages that whatever makes sense uh, you sell it uh, you know move to bigger better things uh, and somewhere along the way in future you would like to hold quality deals for the long term or is it uh, the other way like saying uh, perhaps that i don't want to hold the deals long term i just want to uh, you know exit out of it and not uh, really go the lifetime or the premium cash flow as i call it away what, what's what's your take like in these situations well it's it's i mean we we again we tell investors to expect 4 to 5 years that we we hold all our assets that long mm-hmm. no I mean, you know some assets are held maybe slightly shorter some assets are held slightly longer. Uh, those assets that are held slightly shorter, maybe we've achieved our, 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 our return parameters, we've achieved our turnaround plan for the, re, for the rehab of the units, mm-hmm. we've achieved our rent growth projections, and three years down the road, uh, somebody comes to us and gives us an unbelievable offer on, on the asset. Why would, we, why would we turn it down? So sure. mm-hmm. uh, we did that recently with an asset that we owned, uh, we owned here, and, uh, we, we sold it up within three years of owning it. So that was shorter than, than the timeline that we initially expected, but sure. the investors made a, made, a, made a good amount of money and, and, sure. and the assets were fantastic. Um, and some assets uh, are cash flowing like crazy and you know, the investors get greedy. We do, we do too, because you know, <laughs> we have some assets that are producing older assets that are producing 15, 16% cash on cash. I mean, that's you, awesome. You, you're not going to get that these, you know, and, and you sell it and you go into another assets that are going to produce maybe 12 or 11%. And investors are like, no, we don't want to sell out of this asset. So, <laughs> you know. No, it's, it's uh, sometimes as you indicate, it's, it's, it's more about what's the beneficial interest uh, of investors putting their interest uh, forefront and guiding that uh, philosophy that way, uh, I guess. So uh, thank you. you. Do, I, do. I mean, but you, you do have to have some other restrictions as well. I mean, you know, you don't want to hold an asset. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, 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 we want to adhere to those investor expectations at the same mm-hmm. time. I don't want to hold an asset for more than 10 years. I mean, that's, that's way too long. I mean, you know, it's, that's not, that's not our, that's not our investment philosophy. That's not our investment mandate criteria. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what, you know, again, going back to, sort of the difference as you go through the, the machinations of becoming an asset manager, right. um, you, you have to have a set, start to set a certain set of expectation and certain investment mandates for yourself internally. And those investment mandates have to be somewhat strict and you have to be strict with yourself, you know, how you, you enforce those investment mandates. Because otherwise, you know, you, you say, well, what's your average hold time? And I'm going to say, well, I don't know, anywhere between one to 10 years. Well, who wants to hear that? <laughs> in other words you don't know what you're doing <laughs> yeah that, that, that's exactly right that tells you i don't know what i'm doing i know <laughs> i love that answer uh so uh speaking of that john um i know you indicated uh, uh sort of in indirect way there that you are looking for uh value add propositions value add deals um uh, yeah. And typically that means you buy uh, slightly, uh, you know, inferior assets, whether it's inferior assets in good areas uh, and things like that. Uh, could you maybe give us some uh, inside scoop on your value add strategies, uh, what you like to see in a deal and what makes you take uh, what passes sort of your uh, first napkin math when you see a deal come across your desk? Uh, uh, what merits further due diligence? Could you maybe give, give us insights into some of these uh, aspects please sure sure yeah i mean we are in the value add space i mean which means we buy uh we buy in the b class so we are you know again for those of you who are not familiar with the different class sizes we are you know usually a lot of real estate commercial real estate comes in a b c uh class sizes or classes and we are solidly in the b class that's what our niche is uh which is also better known sometimes as workforce housing uh, we satisfy we satisfy the demand of you know, the average working professionals. Uh, mm-hmm. we're not, you know, we're we're not selling luxury. Um, but we're not renting luxury properties, and but we're also not not renting. Um, you know, a lot of inferior, lower, you know, lower, lower, lower class properties as well. So we sure. are that sort of solid B class range. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the some of the initial napkin math uh, for 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 those would be um, you know what what obviously what kind of cash flow. They're going to generate, uh, and that formula of cash flow involves how much are we putting in in capex, how much are we spending on on the on, on the units per unit price, um, and that capex. What does that translate? You know, what kind of ROI are we going to get on that capex? 
you know, if we are looking at an asset that requires, um, you know, a, a, a rehab of, of the kitchen and the floors, uh, are we putting in $3,000? Are we putting in $5,000 per unit? Uh, and those three to 5,000, how long is it going to take us through rent bumps uh, or rent increases in the next, in the following three years to make the, to make up that, 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 that difference to make up that those that money that capex that we spent on, mm. on, on unit, mm. um, and hopefully the math will come out will come out right that we'll within a certain parameter time parameter, two three years four years whatever it is that you set forth for yourself, you, you will make you know that that's how long it will, it will take you to capture that 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 money and the ROI will start to obviously uh, increase further after that, um, and, and and a lot of our deals when we buy them. Um, from a, a, a debt or leverage perspective, we always try to have some kind of an IO component or interest-only component mm-hmm. built into our um, in, built into our structure, built into our loan. Um, and, and, and the reason interest-only is important is because you need that interest-only component for the first two to three years of your ownership in order for you to implement your value-add strategy, in order for you to essentially rehab the unit. Because sure, as you, sure. you can't take over a 200-unit complex and expect on week one that you're going to turn around all these 200 units and rehab them all at once. That's just, right. that, that doesn't happen. Right. Usually right. The way that you rehab the units, you rehab them on term, which again, yeah. what I mean on term, meaning when the, when the, when the turnover happens vacate, right. uh, and you are getting ready to get the next renter in, in uh, that's, that's the, that's, that's a turn. Uh, so, sure. that, you know, so you're rehabbing those units based on the turn. Uh, we've we've streamlined our process so well that we are we, you know, our timeline of rehabbing units between turns uh, is, is is literally eight eight days. So we, we wow. really really need about eight days, eight to ten days at max to to, to rehab those assets to where we want them to be um, and, and turn them back out into the marketplace and re rent them. So, That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and thank you. Thank you for that detailed answer uh, there, John. Uh, speaking of those rent differences, uh, so when the deal comes across your desk, uh, John, uh, what sort of rent differential you're looking? So when you project your pro forma, uh, let's say whatever, two years, three years down the line, are you looking for 10% minimum rent difference uh, uh, you're trying to get to, or you need like a minimum 20, 25% uh, uh, rent differential uh, to kind of, uh, you know, uh, further analyze the deal? Could you maybe uh, tell us how, how you're going to go about that? Yeah, let's, let's come back to earth. There's no 20, 20%. That's the, you know, you, you mean, I, mean I, I, I might have to re- rebuild the whole thing to get 20%. Right? <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty ambitious. We, uh, we, we generally build in, so, so general, general rule of thumb is that you build in about two to three percent uh, organic rent growth on, 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 on most most areas and most markets. Uh, if it's a if it's a healthy market, healthy apartment market that is that has some growth in it and uh, some good demographics, you're building in about two to three percent organic rent growth. And what that means, organic rent growth, meaning you don't have to do anything to the unit uh, in order for you to increase rent. You're really increasing rent. Just based on the inflationary economics sure, of the area, sure. that, mm-hmm. that's it. Right. So, um, so you take that two to three percent inflationary uh, rent growth, organic rent growth, and then think, what else can I? What uh, what capital improvements am I putting into the unit in order for me to achieve some additional rent growth beyond that? Um, you know, can can the market sustain granite? Can the market sustain stainless steel? Can the market sustain? Um, you know, a better gym, uh, better amenities. Can I improve the clubhouse? Can I offer dog parks? Uh, and and putting in all these things obviously costs money. But you know, I, if if I put those things in, am I going to be able to get another three, four, five, six, ten percent rent increases in order for me to implement those things? Uh, and and you have to you have to do your market research. I mean, there there are no there's no set amount that I can tell you right now uh, are that, that, Hey, I, you know, I, we always do that number. It's, it's not that simple. I mean, you have to look at what the market can bear. That's why it's very important to do your, your comp and comparable research in the marketplace. When we, and that's why we, we extensively do comparable market research when we do our due diligence. Um, and not, not only on paper, but you actually physically have to go to the area and drive the area around. There's so many people that will look at an asset on paper and it, Looks amazing, uh, but but you, you go and start to, to to speak to the comparable assets nearby. Uh, you talk to the property managers of those assets. You talk to sometimes vendors that are around. You talk to store managers. 
I mean, we talk to a lot variety of people, not just apartments. We sometimes walk, you know, we sometimes go to the Chamber of Commerce and say, hey, what's going on in the area here that's going to make it pop in the next couple of years? Is there something exciting coming in? You know, is, is there is there, you know, is there a Microsoft or a Google facility or an Amazon facility that's coming by? Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all important factors that, that are going to go above and beyond to determine your numbers and, and the, the confidence you have in your numbers mm-hmm. uh, in order for you to, to, to implement those rent increases and then for you know, the life of the asset that you're holding. Right, right. So, uh, John, give us an example of a successful deal you acquired, you sort of added the value, achieved the rent bumps, and uh, sort of exited, meaning sold the asset and achieved the returns for your investors. Give us an example of uh, some of that, please. Yeah, sure. I mean, we did, we did a deal, uh, a pretty sizable deal in uh, Statesville. Um, um, uh, North Carolina here, and we we actually we actually did a couple of, couple of different deals that are that are good. One one in one in Rock Hill and one in Statesville, and uh, uh, we bought the asset and we did our our, our uh, value projections in it. Um, we had in both both of those deals we had about anywhere between three thousand to about five thousand per unit um, mm-hmm. as far as the rehab cost is concerned. Uh, we held the assets for about three years. And within three years, and especially with this current market dynamic, we started getting offers uh, from uh, private equity guys and some 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 even bigger institutional players uh, for you know a price that we really simply couldn't ignore. So uh, we were able to sell out of that asset within within three years, uh, mm-hmm. even though it, it it was less than what the time frame that we projected to hold it, which was about four years. Mm-hmm. So it was about a year lower than what we projected to hold it, but. But we achieved the returns a lot quicker than we thought. Um, and that's always that's always a great uh, a great way to you know exit before your projected uh, yeah, uh, four more years. <laughs> yeah, and in, in, in the case of that, uh, it's uh, you know the uh, one of the properties is, is called Carolina Crossing, and uh, we we did some you know, we, you know we did a decent amount of exterior work. We did some work to the clubhouse. We did you know work to the, to some of the units. And 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 by the way, we in. in in general, we don't do 100 percent uh, renovations to all our 100 percent of our units. A Thank you. Times. Thank you for bringing that up. That's an awesome point that I uh, I did wanted to ask you. That there's this philosophy that you know don't do everything uh, yourself. Leave something for the next guy to chew on. Correct. Or leave some meat on the bone, as we said, right? Correct. Uh, could you could you maybe tell us why it's so appealing that uh, or it's built in your performer that you only do a certain percentage? Why it's that so important? Well, because it's important. It's important to look at what, who you're going to sell and what 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 that who that who that buyer is going to be. We always. We approach every single one of our deals from the beginning to think who is going to be our buyer five years from now or four years from now, and, mm-hmm. and that's this is what we think about before we even buying the deal. This is what we, yeah, this is something we think about as we are doing our due diligence, as we are doing our projections and performa. Mm-hmm. Uh, every deal we look at, we think you know, okay, so four years from now, who is this deal going to be appealing to? Who is going to be the typical buyer? Who is going to be the the ideal buyer for this? What are they going to want to see four years from now, five years from now? Right. Uh, and, and, that, and that's how we structure our entire deal based on who we think that is going to buy that deal four to five years from now, what they're going to, what they're going to want. And, and that dictates anything from debt that dictates our, our renovation plan that dictates how many units we renovate and turn around and rehab. Um, and, and it dictates how we manage the property. So all of that factor goes into in the, in the beginning. So we front load, the expectations five years from now, now, today. And that's really what makes the deal successful for us. Because if you don't go into a deal with the mentality of how am I, am I going to handle this deal five years from now, you're, you're really kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Thank you. Thank you. Begin with the end in mind, uh, basically. Right? Begin with the end in mind you know, and, and kind of reverse engineer what you, okay. what you think that buyer is going to look like. Uh, and, and just to backtrack on that, I mean, so – one of the one of the things I just mentioned is debt. So we a lot of our debt we take long term debt, uh, and a lot of people look at it and say, "Why do you take long term debt? Why don't you do?" There's a lot more attractive, lower priced options that you can take with either bridge loans or mez loans or you know three year arms or something like that. Or right. yeah. and the reason we do long term debt, which is usually anywhere between 10, 10 years to twelve year permanent debt, 
um, is that we 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 have we think we think that the mentality of what that buyer looks like at the other end, uh, mm-hmm. it, because we want to leave not only meat on the bones for the apartments, but we also want to leave them an option to do an assumable loan, mm-hmm. uh, because today's rates are so com- compelling and so competitive. Five years from now, they may not be. So maybe sure, sure. If, if you can lock up something today at let's call it I don't know four and a half, four and three quarters uh, interest rate. Mm-hmm. Five years from now, if the interest rates are six. You know, my goodness, that that property wow. is going to be really attractive to whoever. Yep. You Absolutely, know. you just created a just automatic value by having a lower uh, assumable loan, uh, exactly. a lower rate, exactly. and they and they'll have another five to seven years left on the loan that they can assume. Sure, so, sure, sure. So it's a win-win. Hundred percent agreed there. Hundred percent agreed. That's awesome. Um, just speaking of that, uh, then uh, John, uh, you were talking about that deal, right? Uh, how how was the exit? Like, what did you uh, like? What sort of uh, IRR, cash on cash return was returned to the investors? Going back to that conversation. Sure. Yeah. The the the, the cash on cash were averaging double digits uh, in in that deal throughout the three years. They're averaging double digits, and then uh, at the time of the sale, the IRRs came in in the in the in the mid twenties range mm-hmm. for those investors. Actually, more more like up to about twenty tw- between twenty six and twenty seven. So, um, so they did, it did really well. It did really well. We we exceeded our expectations, our performance expectations by about. Uh, about twenty percent, twenty five percent above and beyond what we originally expected to to, to return. So, um, you know, anytime you can return to their investors two x over two x of their money, uh, awesome. it's, it's a home run. Right, um, so right. Somebody was to was to put in, you know, and, and, and just to backtrack again to explain to those to those listeners, it, that's a huge factor in when you're looking at a deal is is absolutely is returns of the deal. Right. Uh, you know, the equity multiple, as we call it, the deal multiples exactly. So right. if 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 it, if which means if somebody puts in a hundred thousand with us today, three years from now or four years from now, when we exit that deal, if it's two x multiples, then that means you're getting two hundred thousand in total Correct. out of your investment with us. Correct. Uh, and Correct. That includes both the cash on cash and the IRR bump that you're going to get at the sale. Absolutely, absolutely. And just to make it further clear for our listeners, the way it works is that you're getting a dividend or a, a sort of a coupon clipping uh, return as uh, the uh, as the returns are coming in, or you get it from the cash flow, whether it's monthly or quarterly distribution. So that's your ongoing process. But the bulk of your money is coming from, uh, or the gain is re- realized from when the property is sold. So thank you uh, for that, John. A couple of questions. I know asset management is such a crucial and such a dear topic to all of us. Um, Could you describe us as to uh, why you self-manage your assets? And I guess before we go there, uh, uh, John, I'd like to kind of understand that you have a portfolio that's spread out into multiple states, right? So uh, what goes into, uh, you know, creating such a management company uh, and operating it? Uh, could you maybe give us some insight uh, into how you go about it? Uh, why it's so important for you to own your property management and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, 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 two words, cost control. I mean, you know, absolutely. It, it's, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the main reason why we like to have our asset management or, or property management company in-house. Right. Uh, we, we have better handle on costs. We have better handle on personnel. We have better handle on operations. Uh, it gives us a better handle on the market. It gives us, it gives us, it, it just gives us a better handle on, on managing a lot of our properties uh, right, right. more effectively, uh, mm-hmm. therefore returning, you know, giving us better returns on our investments to both mm-hmm. us and to our investors. Right. right. Uh, is it is it a, is it a huge is it a huge money maker for us? No, nah, may, may not be, uh, mm-hmm. but but it but it, it is a money maker for us because it helps the other side of the company as well. That, uh, that is very crucial, uh, and I can relate from my personal experience as well. Uh, in that, John, is that the cost control and some of the control that you bring in. Um, I think it gives you a guarantee to keep things in line with, you know, how it is, because the last thing you want is, you know, kind of get into a scope creep and, uh, you know, all those things and just headaches that come with all of that. It's just, I mean, the stories go on and on. 
but uh, tell me, John, like how do you go about having this multi-state uh, property management company? I mean, obviously you need a lot more resources, crews and things like that. Uh, how, how did you grow uh, that property management to such a large scale into more different states? You have to, I mean, it, it's, it's hiring the right people and, and people are probably the most essential entity right now in this business. People right, are right. very, very, very important. Uh, and they are probably the most difficult and, and, and probably, yeah, probably the biggest pain point out of any company. Sure, but sure, sure. People, people are, people are a, a huge asset to a company. The right people are a huge asset to a company. The wrong people are the, are the biggest hindrance to a company. Uh, I totally agree. Finding right talent is so crucial. Uh, and uh, a related question there, John, is that uh, people uh, or operators who are as advanced at your scale, uh, typically what they have done is they have established uh, allied uh, other businesses, whether it's uh, you create a spinoff uh, for trash hauling or whether you have your own uh, AC repair or, uh, you know, air conditioning uh, sort of a technical services team and things like that whether it's dry cleaning i mean stories goes on and on somebody has established a landscaping uh, company and things like that uh, do you uh, does your company tend to do that or you subcontract a lot of these things and you kind of uh, keep the core uh, management of units and things like that only to you could, could you maybe elaborate on some of that yeah, we, we we subcontract some some of that but to answer your earlier question um about how we how you handle a multi-state uh, property management company Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you employ the right people in the right places, but then you have to also create certain different different levels of management. So, uh, all you know, in a, in, a, in a very simple way, all our property, all your properties, uh, are going to have property managers. They're gonna, sure. And and property management is going to be dictated on whatever the size of the asset is or the apartment complex is. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, the rule of thumb is for every hundred units, you're having a, a one in one. So one internal, one external, meaning one. One in one property manager or one leasing manager or leasing agent and one um, one uh, maintenance person maintenance, maintenance personnel. So sure, sure. So as you you know, you can do the math as you grow. Does that mean a two hundred unit complex will only have two people internally, a property manager and assistant property manager? No. Uh, most of the time, yeah, but it doesn't necessarily. It depends on the complex and the complexity. Yeah, and I think there are some assumptions within it as well, right, John? That uh, you know, in the scenario described, right? Uh, from what I can, I have learned is that you have assumptions there. Is that you're subcontracting your drywall, your kitchen rehab, and things like that, where. There are other operators where we say that, oh, geez, if I have 100 units, I'm going to have one leasing staff, but I'm going to have maybe four guys who are doing different kinds of things. One could be just doing, uh, you know, just the cleanup and sort of the porter type of yeah. job. Whereas you've got these other three guys who may be doing the painting, the drywall or the kitchen, like, you know, the light hand, handyman type well, of thing. Well, the rule of thumb is you got to have, you got to have at the very least of your full-time staff have right. to be the one that takes care of your punch list items. So the right. punch list items, uh, and, and, and when I say a punch list item, meaning, you know, when they do painting and, and uh, uh, cabinet repairs and AC repairs, HVAC repairs, you know, plumbing, sure. issues, mm -hmm. uh, those punch list items that usually comes up, come up with, you know, renters, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, like, gee, my right. toilet is overflowing and on my, you know, I had a hole in the wall. I have a, you know, I have some electrical outlet that's out. I might, my, my AC is not working. So these are all punch list items and you have to have people on staff that will take care of those punch list items. Uh, as as you do more involved, um, more involved rehab and construction issues, those those are not necessarily have to be in in, in house. Those you can outsource. I mean, you can outsource right. drywall guys. Because right. how often are you going to really do complete drywalls? I mean, sure. you know, you're, well, why employ somebody full time if you're not going to if you're only going to do drywalling you know once every I don't know three months or four months or whatever. Right. Right. So. Uh, so you employ, or, or maybe even every, I mean, you might do it every month, but you might only need it for that one day out of that, out of the, out of absolutely, month. absolutely, absolutely, right. So, so you employ some of the more expensive stuff out, uh, you know, instead of keeping somebody in house all the time. Makes uh, sense. You know, you, if you're doing something, some, some major construction, obviously that's outsourced. If you're doing, uh, if you're doing landscaping, usually sometimes you can outsource that as opposed mm -hmm. to keeping it in house because a lot of guys that are doing you know, punch list items sometimes are not, they're not that good at landscaping. So, you know, they, they, you know so you, you employ an outside, outside landscaping company to take care, to take care of that for you. So, right, um, right. Yeah, so really, it really, it depends. I mean, you want to, you want to minimize the people that you'd want to pay full time. 
Absolutely. Uh, to only the essential that they can take care of the essentials that you need for the turns and for the maintenance of the of the apartments. Everything Absolutely. outside and above and beyond that that you're only going to need on a on a on a temporary temporary basis. You outsource that to, to to somebody else. Makes makes complete sense. Makes complete sense. So, uh, thank you, there, John. And um, another thing we talked about, John, is the mentality of real estate operations versus you know taking the hat of asset management role right so yep. in your company and at the level that you are john uh, what is your capital raising strategy like are you a uh, do you have multiple funds or a fund that's open that you typically intake uh, capital into it and you deploy into the deals or are you uh, because of uh, the relations that you have now uh, you raise capital on a per deal basis could you maybe give us some insights into that we, we so we we do or we do all of the above. We have we have we do have our internal internal funds. Um, mm -hmm. We have some targeted asset funds that we that we have uh, that we that we keep money in on a regular basis to go mm -hmm. after certain assets. Uh, mm -hmm. And these these funds are funded by our our, our stable of investors mm -hmm. uh, and and our own cash as well. Sure. Uh, we also obviously on as I mentioned earlier, in the deal, it depends on the deal size and the equity stack of the deal. We we obviously. We work with private equity people. We work with institutional guys on bigger deals. Uh, it really just depends on the size of the deal and what type of equity is, is, is needed. Uh, we, we, again, just to reiterate what I said earlier, we always put in our own money in every single one of our deals. We always have skin in the game in every deal. But, uh, you know, and, and, but where that money comes from is usually a combination of our own, 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 own safes and coffers and, and our own funds, internal funds. That's awesome. You got all the engines firing off, whether that's a Rolls-Royce engine or a heavy Falcon engine. You got yeah, all, exactly. all of them going. <laughs> we, got to, man. We, we got to keep that. You got, you got to keep that Ferrari going, man. That's uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I know, John. It's uh, it's been a pleasure, and we are uh, you know well into uh, in-depth conversation here. Uh, one last uh, question for you, John. Knowing the state of economy the way it is, I mean, a lot of investors are having one heck of a time finding proper deals that, uh, you know, pencil out. Uh, it's fair to say that there's going to be some reckoning or some uh, shape or form of softening that's going to happen in the market. Uh, what is your take on where we are at the state of economy and how it can affect uh, real estate, whether it's multifamily classes, office, industrial? Could you maybe give us some insights uh, on what you or what sort of your uh, take on this is? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, we we we're definitely expecting some kind of correction in the marketplace. I mean, but that and I say it lightly because we don't know what how steep or how you know how 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 much the correction is gonna is gonna be. Mm -hmm. um, we are gonna we are already going through some correction in some certain metro areas, a lot of major metro areas like like the New Yorks and the Boston and even even Charlotte to some extent. Are experiencing a little bit of correction on the A class, and there's a there's a there's a differentiation between sure. A class and B class, and what we're going to be going through right. in any economic cycle. Economic cycles affect different classes differently. Uh, a class is going to get affected by any by downturn a lot more steeper and quicker than B class. Um, and and the reason that is is because you know if you look at A class and B class, and I always say that to, to, to people as they're asking me about why why we excel in the, in the B-class workforce housing, where we feel confident and, and, and we feel like there's a lot more safety in there, is because if you take somebody who is renting a, uh, a luxury apartment and paying, let's, let's call it you know, maybe $2,500 a month for a two-bedroom apartment, sure. uh, and something happens, God forbid, to their job, they lose their job or something happens to their family, uh, they're gonna try to look for something that's very comparable in amenities, sure. maybe even in the area, uh, but for a lot less money. So in order to do that, they're probably going to, their first stop is going to be us. Their first stop is going to be Absolutely. a B-class apartment. Right. Uh, and the delta between an A-class and B-class is, is, is much, much bigger than the delta between B-class and C-class. Uh, the delta mm -hmm. between A-class and B-class is, is, is huge. It's, it's, so if they, can go, they can go from a $2,500 a month apartment and go to a B-class apartment and probably shave off at least a thousand bucks. And go to $1,500 or $1,400 still get a product that is very good that, that gives them all the amenities they want sure. uh, but they're paying a lot less now if, if now for people who are already living in b class uh and something happens to to them or to their job or, or whatever 
they may think twice about going to a C class because when they go to C class, they could really gonna they're gonna experience a lot more drastic change. Entities, okay. they're gonna experience drastic change in the areas, they're gonna experience the, that change is gonna be so much more drastic, but the money is gonna be less 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 effective than, than between A and B. They're not gonna save a thousand bucks by going to a C class. They might save five hundred dollars or you know, six hundred dollars. They're not gonna save a thousand bucks. So the saving Delta is going to be much smaller from B to C than it is from A to B. That's why you are in the B space uh, at as B class. That knowing you have the sort of the resiliency of uh, you know whether the market softens and things like that, you will still be protected. So exactly, exactly. And we we see a lot of. I mean, we we hope to see a lot a lot more deals. Actually, in twenty twenty weeks, we're expecting the buyer pool to contract a lot, and we expect that it's going to be a lot more buying opportunities for people like us and. In the, in the solid B class pace and about, by about 2020, 2020, 2021. Uh, and, and, and we're, I don't want to say we're looking forward to it, but we, we are somewhat looking forward to, to better buying opportunities for us. And for, you know, people that we're helping, we're, you know, we're, 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 we're launching a coaching program that we're hopefully uh, going to be helping other people buy some, some similar apartment complexes. That's awesome. That's awesome. So thank you. Thank you, John. I greatly appreciate your detailed answers. Uh, I think you added such a tremendous value in terms of telling us the tactical stuff and also the mechanics on the ground, what goes on and also the high level stuff where, you know, how you scale your company and things like that. So I appreciate your detailed answers today and thank you for your time. Uh, please share with our listeners uh, where they can find you and locate you. Sure. Uh, they can, they can, they can locate us at, at the www.macvp.com. M-A-C-C-V as in Victor, P as in Paul.com as Mac Venture Partners. Uh, or they can email me directly at john at m-a-m-a-c-c-v-p.com, john at macvp.com. Uh, or they can find me on Instagram at jjazar. Wow, there you go, Instagram, awesome. So it's been a pleasure and for our audience, uh, if you have any questions, if you're interested in joining any for our future investment opportunities, uh, premium cash flow capital also plays into multifamily self storages and manufactured home parts. Uh, time to time, we always have several lucrative opportunities. Uh, please look up on the website, premiumcashflow.com. Very simple, premiumcashflow.com. Uh, so thank you, John. It's been a pleasure having you. Uh, I think at some point uh, I would love to invite you back on some another topic where we can dig in. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.